that there are lots of songs with the word heart in the title. Uh, Celine Dion's heart, I like the song, and on, and on. Uh, I would have pictures for you of Billy Ray Cyrus's excellent haircut. He had an achy breaky heart. Elton John sang, don't go breaking my heart. Neil Young, he looked for her. He'd be searching for her. The heart of God. And many crooners have been so unfortunate as to leave their hearts in San Francisco. The Bible talks a lot about the heart, and this morning we are going to hear a warning from God. Do not harden your hearts to God. The Bible talks a lot about the heart, like pop songs talk about the heart, in a kind of non-literal way. Uh, were you to actually leave your heart in San Francisco, it wouldn't mean that, the song doesn't mean that you would actually die because you no longer have an organ pumping blood around your body. It means you left your affections in San Francisco. The Bible talks about the heart a lot like the way we talk about the brain or the mind. Uh, when the Bible appeals to our hearts, it's referring to our character, or our intellect, or our wills, or our emotions. Uh, the warning that we hear this morning about the hardening of our hearts really is a warning to each of these parts of ourselves. Our character can be trained out of godliness, just as it can be trained towards godliness. Our intellects can be instructed away from the truth about God, just as it can be instructed into the truth our wills can be tempted to actions that displease God, just as they can be trained to do things that please Him. Our emotions can become focused on things other than God, just as they can become focused on God. So please open up to Psalm 95. Uh, we normally make you lazy by putting it on the screen. So you can find a Bible or find a device in your pocket that I'm sure will be able to display for you some version of Psalm 95, the first two verses of which say, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Many of the Psalms in the book of Psalms find their origins in Israel's corporate worship. Perhaps verses 1 and 2 may have been on the lips and hearts of people uh, as the festivals began in the Temple of Jerusalem. Now I have for almost all of the time I've been a Christian, been involved in congregations that were quite small, uh, relatively small, and I think there's something nice about that. There is a familiarity uh, of being part of a smaller congregation. But last week, uh, my family and I attended the Church Missionary Society, the CMS Summer School, uh, and we were walking up the hill, if you've ever done the walk at Katoomba from the car park of the Katoomba Christian Convention, it, it, with each passing year, the hill seems to get steeper, and, uh, it's, but it is exciting to be walking up that hill. A whole group of people gathered together with a common uh, shared love for God, a common purpose. Uh, very often you see people you haven't seen in a while walking up the hill, uh, and it's a little bit what I imagine it might have been like in Jerusalem for uh, people coming to worship God at the times of the set festivals. And as Israel used to gather to worship, uh, we see here two reasons for their joyful and triumphant approach to God. Verses 3 to 6. Firstly, God alone is God. 
Verse 3, for the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Now you may wonder, why is it that God is described in this way as the great God above all gods, the great King above all gods? Is not God the only God? Why is he set above all these other gods? Well, it's likely that the psalmist describes him in this way in order to set him apart from the local gods worshipped by the nations around Israel. Uh, these gods, unlike Israel's God, were inseparable from the created order. There are sun gods and water gods and spirits of the various elements uh, bound up with the creation. But Israel's God was both before and was separate to creation, unlike the gods of the nations around Israel. Uh, today, I think we as Christians need to speak of God clearly as the only God. But not only that, but to speak of Jesus as the only way to the only true God. Uh, Some time ago, I read a very interesting book called The Experience of God, in which the author says that almost all religions, or at least sections of all religions have a sense of there being one God. Even religions we might think of as quite polytheistic or having many gods, Sikhism, uh, Hinduism, he makes the argument that all of these religions have a sense of there being a, a big G, capital G God behind the small G gods that are worshipped by the various religions. And today we need to, I think, Firm. Uh, yes, perhaps the religions of the world are seeking after that one true capital G God, but true knowledge, a true encounter of that God is found only through Jesus Christ. And then that's not because Christians have been the only people smart enough to work it out. It's not because of uh, anything better about Christians. But it, is, it has to do with the fact that God has graciously revealed himself made himself known exclusively through Jesus. Now, a second reason for God deserving praise is that not only is he our maker, but he is also our shepherd. We are under his care, verse 6. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. So this psalm begins with an invitation and it gives us the reasons for why we should accept the invitation to enjoy and worship God. And I hope that that is the reason that informs why it is and how it is that you come to church. We come to church in part to together meet with God, to enjoy Him. But we notice that in this psalm, this invitation to enjoy God is followed by a warning. Beautiful and enjoyable things often come with warnings. If you head up to the Blue Mountains and go to one of the lookouts or observation decks, you will always you can enjoy the beauty of what is seen, except when uh, the valley is full of smoke. But you can enjoy the scene before you, and there will always be along the way or somewhere on the observation deck there will always be a warning sign: careful, stay back, caution, falling rocks, keep behind a fence, all of that stuff. Listen to the warning in verse seven. Today, if you hear his voice, 
hardened your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my way. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Here's the warning. God is speaking. Do not fail to hear. Israel knew God as the one who rescued them, brought them up out of slavery in Egypt. And yet, the journey to the promised land, a journey that should have taken maybe a week or ten days, took 40 years. And this psalm points the reader back earlier in the Bible to the book of Numbers, chapter 13, uh, and Exodus 17, where Israel grumbled. They complained they had no water, so they complained against God. They wondered, is God really for us? Can he really pull off this whole promised land thing? So the two words uh, that are there, Meribah, Nassar, means testing. Now I have done over the years a fair bit of driving, long distances on holidays, with children in the backseat. So there has, I've known a little bit of arguing, a little bit of testing, a little bit of Meribah, a little bit of Massah. But I was never tempted to extend the journey by 40 years as a form of punishment. <laughs> now in the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews picks up Psalm 95, and he makes of this passage a warning for his readers and also for us. After quoting the section of the warning from Psalm 95, he applies it to them with this application. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end of confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Sin is deceptive. Uh, sin comes to us in the guise or in the form of uh, temptation. It may come before our eyes, it may come before our minds as an idea, it may be an emotion, it may snake its way into a relationship. But the temptation to sin always has this aspect. It comes to us as an offer, as an opportunity to disobey God. It may be blatant and obvious, or it may be subtle. And the deceptiveness of sin is found in this, that the sin that comes before us, we can often see it and consider it as something that is good, or justifiable, or reasonable. It appears to us as something we really should do. But we need to tell that lie. It got me out of a whole messy, difficult situation. I really needed to pass on that story about that other person. It was, it was in the public interest. I responded angrily to that 
like a beautiful looking apple pie. Picture it, golden crust, that kind of nice golden sugar sprinkled on top, baked just right. It looks perfect. But in fact, when you cut inside and grab a piece and bring it to your mouth, it is full of cockroaches. Sin is deceptive. Sin also hardens our hearts. Another thing that happened last week at the CMS Summer School was uh, we had a chance to, because a lot of ministers tend to go to this uh, conference, we had a chance to catch up for lunch with a number of people who were in the, the same year as myself at uh, Theological College. And we've been out of college for over 20 years now, so we are getting to an age where things are starting to fall apart physically. <laughs> so we've actually had a couple of heart attacks in recent times. And I, I must say, uh, you know, I bear no ill will to the person, but, you know, it is brings me a slight perverse pleasure to know that it is the fittest people in our year who seem to be having these stabbing chest pains as they ride their bikes for 300 kilometres and suddenly have a chest pain. I reckon if I did that, I'd probably have a chest pain too. But that is one of the most things, dangerous things about cardiovascular disease, that it, it doesn't usually show up. The symptoms are hidden until the heart attack happens. Most commonly, uh, deposits build up around the arteries, and then it's only when it becomes blocked and you start to get those chest pains, you realise that what I'm going through is myocardial infarction or heart attack. Uh, and that's why your GP generally will keep taking your blood and taking samples and finding out your cholesterol and telling you not to eat your favourite foods. And sin, similarly, can be at work quietly and subtle, subtle, bit by bit. Our hearts are choked and we can be drawn away from God. Our character can be altered, be warped by repeatedly giving in to sin. Our intellect can be instructed away from God and from the truth about Him. Our wills can be swayed into actions that Maybe a few years ago we would never have even considered, but bit by bit by bit, we've perhaps compromised our behaviour and we find ourselves doing something we never imagined. Our emotions can become focused on money or prestige or people if we constantly allow those things to be the object of our affections. And this hardening of the heart is both preceded by and enabled by blocking our ears to God's voice. Because if we do have in mind, if we plan to do evil, we're going to block our ears to any voice that will try and dissuade us from that course of action. But if we're Christians, we must be people who hear God's voice. And the Bible itself is very clear on how it is that we hear God's voice, how we hear God speak to us. Hebrews 3 and 4 is quoting from Psalm 95, from earlier in the Bible, and saying, today, if you hear his voice. It's the scriptures, quoting the scriptures to say, this is how you hear the voice of God. This is how we hear God's Holy Spirit speak to us, for he is the one who has inspired the scriptures so that we might know God know his will for our lives. Therefore, we must be people who read the Bible widely. I wonder what plan you have for reading the Bible this year. Uh, is it trying to read 
read the Bible every year or every two years or at least reading large bits of it. We have no shortage of Bibles, as people in some parts of the world have. We have no shortage. We can read a Bible in pretty much any language. We can listen to it. We can watch it. There is no shortage of ways that we can hear God's voice in the Bible. What, what is your plan? How are you going to do that? And as well as reading widely, we should read deeply. That is, read little bits and reflect on them. Meditate on them. Give them learn them by heart. Because the warning we've heard this morning is, is serious. Do not let your hearts become hard towards God. Do not remove the sound of His voice from your life. In Hebrews 3, the warning who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? These people had seen what God had done. Seen the hailstones and the frogs and the, the Egyptians humble. And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The Israelites failed to enter the promised land. That generation died out because of unbelief, because they did not trust, they did not take God at his word. And so we gather together this morning as a congregation to enjoy and worship God. But let us not fail to hear the warning. We must be people who open our hearts to God. Who hear his word 